Good morning, McLean Bible Church. How are we doing this morning? We're good? All right. It's good to be together, whether you're here at our Tyson's location, watching online. Maybe you're watching from one of our locations out there in Prince William and Loudoun, out in Montgomery County. It's good to be gathered together under God's Word. Uh, Let's jump right in. We're going to be in Mark chapter 2. Mark 2, if you brought a Bible with you, go ahead and make your way to Mark 2. If you don't have a Bible uh, with you, we'll have the verses up on the screen. Before we dive into that, I want to share a personal story uh, because I had one of the lowest moments of my life in 2008. Uh, I was, uh, at that time, uh, it, was, it was the week of my wedding, and so I was uh, eagerly anticipating being married to the woman that uh, I'm, I'm married to now. Ashley was one of our worship leaders uh, here uh, in the church, and uh, one of my closest female friends at the time, uh, at one point, our, our relationship got a little confusing. You know what I mean? Come on, you guys know what those friendships are like. You know, the friend zone is a little, you know, subjective. And, uh, and that was right around the time that me and Ashley started dating in, in college. So it made things a little awkward, uh, but we got everything squared away. Everything was, was cleared up. And uh, fast forward again, 2008. So that's, this is years behind us now the week of my wedding, and I realized, well, we hadn't invited that friend to the wedding. And so uh, I went to send Ashley a text message, hey, do you think we should invite? Now, I'm sure, like, something happened in my brain. I'm sure there's some psychological or neurological explanation because since I had her name in my mind, Instead of texting my wife, I texted that to her. So she got the text message, hey, do you think, basically, do you think we, I should invite you to the wedding, basically? It was bad. Ever had one of those moments where you send the text to the wrong person or email to the wrong person? It was all good. We got it all clean, cleaned up. I don't even remember how I tried to, you know what I'm saying, follow up. But you already know. The bubbles are already showing. They can already see you frantically trying to figure something out. Uh, but she was a good sport about it. We actually went ahead and invited her to the wedding. Ashley was all good with it. Everything, everything was good. But this is a real thing. This is a real tension point for couples who are trying to plan a wedding. Who gets the final word on the guest list? Somebody said, not the man. That's, that's a fact. <laughs> Write it down. Who gets the final word on, on the guest list? What constitutes an old flame? Do they get on there? When do we get to decide to go over the budget? Whose in-laws get to invite some random family members that you ain't never met at the last minute? Who gets the final word on the guest list? There was a similar tension point in the passage that we're going to study today. Because there were all of these questions about who is actually on the guest list for the kingdom of God? Who's eligible to be invited? And if you've been tracking with us, you you remember that one of the major themes of these first two chapters in the Gospel of Mark is the authority of Jesus. Last week, we looked at this question, does Jesus actually have the authority to forgive sins? And we saw chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, we studied that. 
that not only does Jesus have the authority to forgive sins, but he is the only one who has the authority to forgive sins, which is why it's so urgent for us as a church family to do everything that we can to spread that message to people who have never heard it. And so if you weren't here, if you missed the message last Sunday, I wouldn't, it's one of those messages that is so foundational to who we are as a church family. I would encourage you to go back and listen to that message because David led all of us to pray a very simple but consequential prayer. This was the prayer. God, I will do whatever you call me to do to spread the gospel to the unreached. My hands are open. My life is yours. God, I will do whatever you call me to do. It might not be the same thing as another person, but I'll do whatever you call me to do. And as a church, we're saying, God, we will do whatever you call us to do to spread the gospel to the unreached. Jesus is the only one who has the authority to forgive sins, and so we need to get that message out to people who've never heard it. And now, in chapter 2, verses 13 to 17, which is what we're going to be studying, the question is, who's eligible for God's forgiveness? Does okay, we've established he has the authority to forgive sin, but does he have the authority to determine the kind of people who are eligible? Does he have the authority to expand the guest list of the kingdom of God? Well, let's see what happens. Mark chapter 2, Marie Forrest from verse 13 to 17, and then we'll pray and we'll dive in. Y'all ready? Yes. All right. Come on, locations. I can't hear you. But y'all ready? Everybody ready? Yes. All right. Let's do it. Verse 13. It says, He went out, Jesus went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him. And he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? If you're wondering, that that wasn't a question, it was an accusation. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick need a doctor. I came to call not the righteous, but sinners. And let me say this before I pray. As I was preparing this message, I prayed that God would send someone today here at any of our locations or God would set somebody up to be watching or listening to this message who feels like you've gone so far or you've been gone so long that you're no longer eligible to receive the grace of God. That God brought you here today or has you watching or listening because you, th- you think you've gone too far and you've been gone too long to be a recipient of the grace of God. And man, I've been praying that God would do what I can't do, that he would work in your heart to show you that the gospel is true. The gospel is true and Jesus is who he says he is. Let's pray. Father, Lord, you know I've been just praying and pleading with you, God, 
don't want my preaching, we as church, we don't want our preaching, Lord, to just be impressive, God. We want our preaching to be done with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And so, God, I'm asking, Lord, would you not just speak to our hearts, God, but would you work supernaturally in our hearts? As we listen to and sit under your word, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Jesus' ministry, we've been talking about this, at this point is based in a town called Capernaum. And remember we talked about how strategic Capernaum was. Capernaum was a fishing village uh, on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. It was right along this ancient highway that we've talked about, this trade route that connected Syria up north, down past Israel, all the way down to Cairo, Egypt, to the south. And so with the Sea of Galilee and, and the, the travel, you know, that you could do, you know, by, by boat and this highway, being in Capernaum not only made traveling throughout the region easier for Jesus and his disciples, but just like in D.C., it gave them the opportunity to reach all kinds of people who were traveling, traveling in and out on business. And so Jesus is teaching down by the sea there in verse 13. And I love that Jesus didn't just teach in the synagogue where all the church people were. Jesus was out in the streets. He was ministering to hurting and hopeless people. And he wanted to reach people who might not ever come to the synagogue. And so Jesus went down to the beach, which was different than how we think about the beach today. For for them, the beach wasn't just a vacation spot. The beach was a business district especially in a fishing town like Capernaum. So this is like starting an outreach ministry downtown in the middle of the workday. And it says that Jesus passed by, so he's finished teaching, he's heading back. He sees Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. Now, Levi is also referred to as Matthew in other parts of the Bible. It was common for Jewish men, you see this in the Gospels, for Jewish men to have two names. So Levi, Matthew, same person. In fact, this is the same Matthew who would later write the Gospel of Matthew that we have in our Bibles today, the first of four Gospels, the first book of the New Testament. But this is before all of that. Matthew, at this point, had built a lucrative career as a contractor for the Roman government. And he had a contract to collect taxes in that region. Let me pause for a second. If you're new to the D.C. area, you just moved here during the pandemic, one of the things that you find out is everybody only has one job. It's a contractor, all right? You should be very afraid when people answer that way. Matthew was a tax collector, and his contract was to collect taxes in that region. And as you read through the Gospels, you'll see tax collectors mentioned over and over again. So I want you to understand how how this worked. The Roman Empire controlled all of ancient Palestine during Jesus' day. And whenever they conquered a territory, they would impose this elaborate system of taxes. And there were all kinds of specific taxes, but they all fell into two main categories. There were direct taxes and there were tolls. Direct taxes were paid directly to the Roman government. They were collected by Roman officers, and these were taxes like property tax, income tax, But then there were tolls or customs, and these were the taxes that affected almost every facet of of day-to-day life. And so if you had a local business, you had to pay import and export dues. 
Uh, in fishing towns like Capernaum, there were these exorbitant taxes on fishing. I read one historian who estimated that, that fishermen would have to pay anywhere between 25 to 40% of their catch in order to keep their fishing license. You had to pay tolls to use certain roads and, and bridges, and you had to also pay customs fees when you travel in or out of certain cities. And the Roman government didn't collect those taxes directly, the customs and the tolls. Instead, they would hire local Jewish contractors to do it. And so Matthew is running his own small business collecting taxes for the Roman government, and his tax booth was strategically positioned in Capernaum right by the Sea of Galilee. Now, some of you already know this, but if you're new to studying the Bible, you got to understand how much the Jewish people of Jesus' day hated tax collectors. For a couple reasons. Number one, most people throughout history aren't excited to give the government their money. All right, this is just part of the human condition, okay? Most people just aren't excited about just giving their money over to the government. But for them, it wasn't just giving money to the government. It was giving their money to an idolatrous pagan government. It was almost like they were capitulating to to the demands of Caesar who actually claimed to be a god. They also hated tax collectors, though, because think about it. The Romans were an oppressive regime that had taken over their land. So being a tax collector was treason. You were participating in the oppression of your own people. You were building your wealth on the backs of the marginalized. So they saw you as a traitor. The tax collectors were known for exploiting people. In fact, that's how they made their money. They were trained extortioners. So it was common for them to impose taxes that they knew people couldn't pay, and then they would charge these astronomical interest rates. And the Roman government would set a certain number of tax revenue that they expected from a particular district, and the tax collector got to keep anything above that number. As long as Rome got their money, they didn't care what these tax collectors did. And there were no laws that regulated what they charged for or how much they charged. Or even if there were those laws, in some cases, the Roman government just turned a blind eye. So you can imagine the kind of corruption that ran rampant all throughout this whole system. Alfred Edersheim was a, was a Jewish man who became a follower of Jesus back in the late 1800s. And he was one of, still is, one of the most influential scholars. His writing uh, is some of the most influential scholarship on the background of the New Testament. And he said, tax collectors would often, this is a quote, would often invent a tax and find a name for every kind of exaction, such as on axles, wheels, pack animals, pedestrians, roads, highways, on admission to markets, Going to Whole Foods, got to pay taxes on, on, on carriers, bridges, ships, and quays, on crossing rivers, on dams, on licenses. In short, on such a variety of objects that even the research of modern scholars has not been able to identify all the names. But even this, he said, was as nothing compared to the vexation, listen, of being constantly stopped on the journey having to unload all of one's pack animals. When everyone, so they, they pop in the, you know, the, your, your trunk, pulling stuff out. It says, when every bale and package was opened, the contents tumbled out and the private letters 
opened. Basically, it was like having to go through TSA everywhere you went and you got a tax bill every single time. This is what it felt like for them. So the Jews hated tax collectors. They were seen as the most vile people in society, like below prostitutes. I love how New Testament scholar Preston Sprinkle put it. He said, a modern day parallel might be a pimp who's also a drug dealer who runs a porn studio on the side and funnels his profits to support terrorism around the world. And so you can understand why in some cases tax collectors were excommunicated from Jewish religious life. Their testimony was inadmissible in a Jewish court of law. They couldn't attend the synagogue or or participate in the annual festivals and, and, and bring sacrifices to the temple. They were cut off from their family and their community. And this is what has become of Matthew's life. And you got to imagine that there's a loneliness in that. There's a loneliness in that, not outwardly, but inwardly, because outwardly, he built a lucrative career. He has a whole lot of money, and so he probably had a whole lot of superficial relationships, but he had alienated himself in his quest for success from the relationships that were actually the most important in life. And so there was this outward success, but but this inward sense of isolation, I'm sure. He had climbed up the ladder of success, as they say, only to realize that the ladder was leaning on the wrong wall. And some of you know what that feels like. Some of you know what that feels like to get to where you thought you wanted to be only to realize it isn't quite what you thought it would be. And there's a trail of damage and consequences in the wake of your success. Now, if you're familiar with this story, have you ever thought about how Matthew got to this point? We don't know all all the details, but I mean... It's the same way all of us get into sin. The Bible is so clear about this. James chapter 1, verse 14, it says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. It's this progression that starts as a desire and it grows into something that becomes bigger than what we expected. And so imagine Matthew growing up as a young Jewish boy. I want us to like enter Matthew's life and his story for a second. Because sometimes we look at people based on a snapshot and we know nothing about their story. Imagine Matthew growing up as a young Jewish boy. He's frustrated by the intrusive presence of the Roman Empire, but he's also somewhat intrigued by it. Maybe he was intrigued by the power that he saw these tax collectors have and the Roman soldiers and government officials had. Maybe he was intrigued by the wealth, the security and the stability and the lavish lifestyle that they flaunted in front of all the Jewish people. And maybe he was greedy and shady and he saw tax collecting as a way of taking advantage of people in order to advance his own kind of success. Or or maybe he just saw it as his only ticket to getting a better life. 
Maybe he stopped believing or or maybe he never believed that the Messiah was actually going to come and deliver his people. And so maybe he thought, if I can't beat Rome, I might as well join them and make something of my life. I don't know. But whatever that desire was in his heart, it grew and it eventually gave birth to a lifestyle of sin against God and against his own people. Have you, teenagers, students, adults, like have you ever made a series of decisions where you ended up wondering, how did I get to this point? How did I let it go this far? Matthew was living a life far from God and far from the people closest to him, and then Jesus shows up and changes everything. You remember me sharing the story maybe about a month or so ago about me picking up my dad for his birthday. Some of you remember this. And my car was dirty, but I didn't know it was dirty. You know what I'm saying? That's one of the, the side effects. You know, it's on WebMD of having kids. You don't even realize no more that your car is dirty. And so I didn't even think about it until I went to pick up my dad for, for, for his birthday. And my dad's car is all my whole life. It's always pristine. There's nothing, literally nothing in the trunk. The trunk is vacuumed. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's, it's absolutely outrageous and somewhat annoying. And, and so I didn't even think about it until my dad was about to get in the car. And all of a sudden, I started noticing everything in the car. What changed? Nothing, nothing in the car had changed. The only thing that changed was that now, instead of seeing my car according to my own standard, I was seeing my car according to his standard. And this is what happens when Jesus shows up. This is what happens when the light of God's truth comes into your life, not in order to condemn you, but in order to show you your true spiritual condition. You begin to notice things that you never noticed before. You begin to feel things that you never felt before. Some of the things like the the whole ladder that you've been climbing up, you realize, I don't want to be on this no more. The stuff that you thought was going to satisfy you, you realize that's not where it's at. That's not what I want. And I wonder if this is happening in Matthew's life. And there's no way this is his first time interacting with Jesus. Jesus had already been teaching and preaching and performing miracles all throughout Capernaum and the surrounding region of Galilee. And almost certainly Jesus had to pass by Matthew's booth over and over again. Matthew had probably even personally heard his teaching and either seen or for sure heard about some of his miracles. And we've looked at some of them, right? The man in the synagogue had been delivered by a demon. The leper had been completely healed. The paralytic had been healed and his sins forgiven. And I wonder if Matthew began to think, maybe Jesus could change my life too. Maybe I haven't gone so far and been gone so long that it's too late for me. If if Jesus could do that for all of them, maybe there's still a chance that I could become a recipient of God's grace and that my life could change. And then Jesus is heading home from teaching at the beach and he sees Matthew, not just like a quick glance, but like, like he looks directly at him in verse 14 and says, follow me. 
He invites Matthew, a tax collector, to become one of his disciples. And Matthew rose and followed him. And I don't think I can describe this scene better than the way they depicted it in season one of The Chosen. Now, listen, I, if there's something controversial about The Chosen miniseries, I don't know about it, okay? So don't email me. I'm just, I've just started season one, okay? But I don't think I can describe this scene better than they depicted it in The Chosen. So I want you to watch this moment when Jesus calls Matthew. His Roman, Matthew's Roman bodyguard is completely confused. Peter, you'll see one of Jesus' disciples, he flips out. He's like, Jesus, what are we doing? You'll see the camera cut to Mary Magdalene who understands in a profoundly personal way what it means to have your entire life transformed by Jesus. Check this out. We live in the same world, Matthew. Next. Besides, what else are you going to do with a mind like yours? Matthew. Matthew, son of Alpheus. Yes. Follow me. Me? <laughs> yes, you. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Oh. What are you doing? You want me to join you? Keep moving, street preacher. Do you have any idea what this guy's done? Do you even know him? Yes. Listen, I said to... What are you doing? Where do you think you're going, guys? Let me go. Have you lost your mind? You have money. Quintus protects you. No Jew lives as good as you. You're gonna throw it all away. you either. But this is different. I'm not a tax collector. Get used to different. I'm glad we passed by your booth today, Matthew. Yes. Shall we? We have a celebration to prepare for. You will regret this, Matthew. What's the tablet for? I grabbed it without thinking. Can put it back? No, no, keep it. You may yet find use for it. Where are we going? A dinner party. I'm not welcome at dinner parties. Well, that's not going to be a problem tonight. You're the host. Yeah. Now, hold up, because you can see the tension this caused among the disciples. Like, they weren't ready to celebrate yet. And you got to think about it. Not only were the disciples Jews who hated tax collectors in general, but at this point, this early group of disciples were mostly fishermen. 
fishermen in Capernaum in Matthew's text district. They had personally watched Matthew line his pockets with their profits. Matthew was absolutely despicable to them. To them, he represented all the things they hated the most in society. Oppression, exploitation, greed, treason, immorality, and idolatry. And let me ask you, let me ask you, because honestly, I think God, this is one of God's words to us as a church in this cultural moment right now. Let me ask you. Is there a person or a group of people that represent all the things you hate most in society? Is there a person or a group of people that represent all the things you hate most in society? That rude neighbor or that mean classmate. Those immoral or irresponsible people people from that political party or that racial group or that particular religion. I won't apply any further because I don't want to get a whole bunch of emails. It's like however the Holy Spirit like leads your heart. Listen, is there a person or a group of people that represent all the things you hate most in society? Because listen, Because that person or that group of people is a good benchmark for how powerful and profound you think the grace of God really is. If you struggle to believe, because see, the, the Jews believed that tax collectors, you see this in rabbinical literature, that they believed tax collectors were beyond the point of repentance, that they were unsalvageable. They were not people to be reached. They were enemies to be attacked. And if we're not careful, our biases can become barriers to the work God has called us to participate in as followers of Jesus. Listen to me. The grace of God requires us to make room for people that we don't even want to be associated with. In our church, in your group, at your dinner table. And as we'll see, this doesn't mean we sweep sin under the rug or that we compromise with immorality or injustice, but it does require us to see people the way Jesus sees them, to not reduce them down to the thing we hate about them, but to see them first and foremost as people made in the image of God, whom God loves and whom God is actively pursuing by his grace, just like he actively pursued us. And this is the grace that Matthew had experienced. And this is the grace that Matthew wanted all of his friends to experience. And so he threw a party. And historian Luke gives us a little more detail than Mark gives us here In Luke chapter 5, verse 29, Luke writes that Matthew organized and hosted a great feast. Some translations say a grand banquet or a large reception. So this isn't isn't just a few friends like stopping by real quick. Like this is a, invitations 
went out. A menu was prepared. Decor was arranged. This is a whole vibe. This is a soiree, like a shindig. This is a whole event. And this was Matthew leveraging his influence to reach the people in his circle. Because if you're a follower of Jesus, there are people that you will be able to reach that I or David or the elder will never be able to reach. There's people you understand the language that they speak. You understand the way that they think. You understand the industry that they operate in. You, you came from that. And this is what Matthew is doing. This is such a word for us right here in the D.C. area with all these spheres of influence represented in the life of our church, in schools, in government, in education, in tech industry, in contracting, in all kinds of spheres of influence. Matthew was using his resources, resources that to this point had only been used to advance his own agenda. He's now creatively using his resources to advance the kingdom of God. And here's one of my favorite snapshots of Jesus' ministry in all of the Gospels. Chapter 2, verse 15. He's at this party that Matthew is hosting. And as he reclined at table in his house, I love this. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples who were probably salty. For there were many who followed him. The same people that were outcasts by the religious community were compelled by the grace that they saw in the life and the ministry of Jesus. And it wasn't because Jesus compromised the truth, as we already read. He came as a doctor to give an accurate diagnosis. It's not because he compromised the truth, but it's because he led with love. He treated people as they were made in the image of God. He saw them not just based on a snapshot, but based on the unfolding story of the work of redemption that he came to bring into their life. And so Jesus is chilling at the banquet with all the most vile people in society because he's on mission. And this is a preview of what you're going to read about all throughout the rest of the Gospel of Mark. As you see the kingdom of God moving and expanding and including all kinds of people that were considered to be on the outside, on the margins of God's redemptive work. And it's a preview of that great banquet that feast in the kingdom of God that we'll enjoy for all of eternity where all of these people are going to be included because they have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. And the scribes of the Pharisees in verse 16, when they saw that Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why is your man eating with tax collectors and sinners? The disciples are probably like, man, I don't even know. I have no idea. I don't don't even know what we're doing anymore. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And this is a summary of his ministry. He said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus like, what do, what do y'all think I'm here for? 
You think I'm here to like play some religious games and just jump through all y'all's religion? No. Where else would I be other than right where people need me the most, where people actually need the gospel? Where else would I be? I came for this. Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. Somebody's excited about that. This is why Jesus came. And so you imagine for a second feeling sick and having some symptoms, and you go to the, to the doctor's office or you show up at the ER, and you, you know, COVID, whatever, you try to suppress your cough because you don't want to make everybody nervous, but a cough slips out. And they shut the whole place down. They're like, no, 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 no. You got to go fix that before you come in here. Imagine you get in an accident or something like that, and you show up with just a wound, your leg just like hanging off, and you're at the emergency room. And as soon as they see blood, they're like, absolutely not. We don't take no broken people here. Be ridiculous. It would be just as ridiculous for the church to be that way. It would be just as ridiculous for that to be our reputation in the culture. Jesus says, I came as a doctor. I am the great physician. I came to bring healing and restoration and salvation. For God did not send Jesus into the world to condemn the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. Jesus came because of the love of God to look you straight in the eye in all of your brokenness and your dysfunction and your sin and your rebellion and your idolatry and mine. And he does two things. He tells you the truth. He tells you the truth. Here's the diagnosis. You have a sickness called sin that you cannot cure in and of yourself. And this whole world tells you nothing's wrong. You've been going to all these other fake doctors that give you a clean bill of health. But Jesus says, no, you have a sickness. It's called sin. And you've made decision after decision after decision that has been offensive to God in your sin. And you cannot cure your own soul. So you got to believe the diagnosis. You got to decide, are you going to believe Jesus? Or are you going to believe Facebook? Or Snapchat, whatever y'all use these days. And then Jesus is not just going to give a diagnosis, then he's going to give the prescription. And what is his prescription? It's not you trying to do a whole bunch of good works in order to try to earn your way to God. It's not you finding yourself. No, Jesus' prescription, he says, is me. I, not me, but this is Jesus talking. Jesus is saying, I am the prescription. It's not a religious system or a religious program or a 10-step 
plan for you to work your way back into the favor of God, Jesus says, I am the prescription. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so he goes at that sickness at the very core. He dies on the cross, taking all of your sin and my sin on himself. He pays the debt that you and I have accrued. We are not accumulating good works in the bank of the kingdom of God apart from Jesus. We are in overdraft. We are in debt so deep that we can never repay it on our own. And Jesus takes all of that debt and he pays it off on the cross. And then he rose from the grave to demonstrate that the check cleared the bank and that you and I can now live on his credit. We get his righteousness because he took our sin when we put our trust in Jesus. This is what Jesus came for. I'll share this quick story, and I want to I leave you with, with just two questions. There's this uh, legendary pastor here in D.C. I'm not going to say his name because I don't know if he sh- still shares this story, but it's amazing. Uh, and I, rem- I don't remember where I was when he shared this story, but when he planted his church, this was like he planted this church back when I was in like high school. His church didn't have a place to meet. And so they met in, in the beginning of their church, they met in, um, well, so this is a multi-generational gathering, so follow me. Uh, They met in in an establishment for professional dancers, right? And so it was a club at night, but on Sunday morning... God's people would come in and they would have to clean up and then they would set the space up and, and they would have church. And there was a group of women in the church who would go to the club at night with care packages. They didn't just stand outside protesting the club. They showed up with care packages, went in, built relationships, would be back in the dressing room, giving these care packages to these workers and sharing the gospel. Older women who've been through some seasons of life. And so things started to get messy because all of a sudden the ushers came to the pastor one day and were like, it's an odd thing. Like, our dollar bills in the, uh, in the offering always have glitter on them. <laughs> These women started coming to church. And I'll never forget what this pastor said. Never forget it. He said he told his church, the day we stop having glitter on our offering, we're off mission. He says, we're off mission. Now, I hope it wasn't the same people bringing the same glitter money over and over again. I hope God was transforming their life and there were new people who are now coming to church and being saved. But you get the point. You get the point. Jesus says, I came 
for sinners. That's what I'm here for. So I just want to ask you two questions. Number one, if you're not a follower of Jesus, do you believe God is gracious enough to save you? To forgive you of all the things, the things that you're not even willing to forgive yourself for. Do you believe God is gracious enough to save you or do you think you've gone too far and been gone too long? Have you even realized yet that you actually need God's grace? If you have, today is the day Jesus through his word says to you in a fresh way, your life can be changed today. Maybe not immediately like everybody else expected to, but I will begin a work in your heart by forgiving you and freeing you, and I will begin to change you from the inside out. And yes, you're going to have to make some difficult decisions. You're going to have to leave that tax booth behind. Wherever you've been finding your identity, wherever you've been building your sense of security and finding your set, you're going to have to leave that stuff behind and you're going to have to follow me. But if that's you today and you're realizing maybe for the first time, I need the grace of God that can only be found in Jesus. And beyond that, I want the grace of God that can only be found in Jesus. Then today you've got an opportunity to follow Jesus. Do you believe God is actually gracious enough to save you? If you are a follower of Jesus, here's your question. Do you believe that God is powerful enough to save the people around you? Because Matthew had to make two major choices. He had already been used to being alienated by by the Jewish community. Now he's having to walk away from this lucrative career that he's built. And the only community that he had been able to experience was with people just like him, these tax collectors and sinners. And now he has to decide if he's willing, as a recipient of the grace of God, is he willing to take the risk of losing a relationship or losing his reputation? Is he willing to potentially compromise his credibility with his colleagues? When he comes clean and says, I'm a follower of Jesus now. I left all of that behind. And you need to leave that behind too to follow this man who will forgive you of all of your sins. And you and I have that same opportunity. Listen, we are in one of the most strategic places in the world. And if you actually believe God is powerful enough to break through hard hearts like Matthew in the same way he broke through your heart. If you believe that God is powerful enough and his grace goes wide enough to save, what are we waiting for? You don't have to wait for a preacher to do it. You don't have to wait for some program on the website to do it. But God has you where you are because you know how to reach those people. And this is what Jesus invites us to participate in. It's been the heartbeat of our church as long as I've been here. And it's the heartbeat of God. So I want to lead us in prayer. And if you're here and you've never trusted in Jesus, man, today is your day. I know you got questions got questions about a lot of things. 
But you know enough today, you know enough to make a decision about whether or not you're willing to believe the gospel and trust Jesus. You'll figure some other stuff out along the way. You saw how confused the disciples were. So I want to pray, and you can repeat after me just in the quietness of your own heart between you and God. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your grace. I thank you that you've given me another chance. God, I don't deserve anything good from you. And I know my sin offends you. And God, there's nothing I can do to make it right or to earn your forgiveness. So today I give up. I'm turning from my sin to put my trust in Jesus. God, I believe that you sent Jesus to die for my sins. And I believe that he rose from the dead. And God, I don't have all my questions answered. But I do know how to have a relationship with you now. And that is only through Jesus Christ. So God, would you forgive my sin? And would you change my heart? And would you lead my life? God, I pray for any person that prayed that from genuine sincerity of their heart. I thank you, I thank you that you don't leave us in our tax booths. Lord, you come and get us. You pursue us, Lord. You pursue us. Thank you. Thank you that the arm of the Lord is not too short, that it cannot save. And God, I pray that you would save dozens, even hundreds of people through your word today. And God, I pray for those of us who are followers of Jesus. God, would you not allow us to shrink back because of fear, because of comfort, because of pride. But God, would you help us to truly believe that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. And so God, would you give us the boldness and the wisdom to know how to reach the people around us with this glorious good news. And God, I pray that you would do that in and through our church now and for generations to come. Would you be glorified in and through us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.